Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, I want to read with you from verse number 1 down to verse number 11. As you turn up the passage, could I add my own words of welcome to those already given on this uh, cold wintry night. It's good to see all those who have come out. We're glad you're here and we pray that God will touch every heart and meet with us in the Lord's house. I want especially just to add to the welcome given to Mr. Stewart's family from Australia, his brother and wife and family. We're glad to see you here tonight, along with the Reverend David Stewart, and I trust the Lord will bless the Stewart family circle here among us this evening, and may the Lord draw alongside of us and touch our hearts as we meet around His Word and we consider it together for a time. So I want to read here in Galatians 4 beginning at verse number 1, down to verse number 11. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth a son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? For unto ye desire again to be in bondage." Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And we end there. We know that God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, could we just bow in prayer once more before we come to God's message? Let us pray. Eternal Father in heaven, we sell ourselves before Thee as we come now to the final part of this gathering, this meeting in this house tonight. We thank Thee for Thy presence with us and for the opportunity to assemble. We thank Thee for bringing everyone along safely into the house of God on this occasion. Lord, we now pray that Thy Spirit will abide with us and that the power of God will be felt and known as we gather ourselves unto Thee around the book. We thank Thee for the verses that we have read we bless Thee for the great section here in this passage in which we are reminded of the coming of our Savior into a world of sin and darkness to redeem a people, to save them from their sins, to make them His own. And Lord, therefore we rejoice tonight that we have a gospel to preach, a message to proclaim of a work finished, of salvation provided, of all of the 
blessings and benefits of redemption freely afforded unto men. And so, Lord, use Thy Word tonight. Bring it with power to many hearts, and let a work be done for Thy glory, even as we wait before Thee now. Hear prayer. Give help to me to preach. Cleanse my heart. Through Jesus' blood, fill me with Thy Spirit, and draw alongside, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and for His sake, and for His eternal, His everlasting glory. Amen and amen. I draw your attention to these verses, and I want tonight to focus your minds, especially as we will, as we will see, to those verses 4 through to 7 in the course of this message. This is a very detailed passage of the Word of God. It contains a large volume of doctrinal and spiritual teaching. It is teaching that was designed to further enlighten the Lord's people and the churches of Galatia in that first century. They stood in great need of the truths that are found in these verses, as we do today. Because the Galatians, like so many today, are subject, were subject to a very subtle spiritual danger. It was the danger of exchanging one form of spiritual bondage for another. And we will see tonight how that was the case in the, case in the uh, uh, time of the Galatian churches. Exchanging one form of spiritual bondage for another is a danger that remains prevalent in the religious world and in the spiritual world of our times. And therefore, Paul's teaching in this passage is never irrelevant. It is always up to Davis, uh, found to be something that is very much to be understood and to be viewed by us even tonight as we come around the Word of God and we consider what the Lord would say to our hearts. In dealing with the danger that the Galatians faced, in verse number 8, Paul reminds them of their past. In these words, when ye knew not God. And those words, of course, are obviously a reference to the unconverted days of these Galatians, these men and women who lived in the first century, who are now converted to the Lord, who know the Lord, who love the Lord, and yet are in danger, but Paul reminds them of their unconverted days when they were slaves to pagan religion, as the next verse actually reveals, or the next words in verse 8 reveal, where it says, Ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. And that part of the verse where it reads, Ye did service, may literally be read, Ye were in bondage. And the sense of the words is that the Galatians were in a form of spiritual slavery to idolatry, to the worship of pagan gods, and of course to the sinful lifestyle that always accompanies false religion. But by the grace of God, they were released from that bondage. They had been set free, as the words indicate. However, at the time when Paul wrote this epistle, they were in danger of being deceived into embracing another form of spiritual bondage. And that's what I mean by 
making that statement that they were in danger of exchanging one kind of spiritual slavery for another. And Paul's warning about this is in verses 9 and 10. And in those verses, the reference is to the dead religious ceremonial rituals of the unbelieving Jews and their religion of works that was being forced upon the churches of Galatia. These Galatians were being taught or were being told that the observance of certain holy days and months and times and years would earn them favor with God. And that amounted to an exchange of one form of spiritual slavery for another. From this we learn that it is the devil's objective to keep sinners in bondage of soul. To accomplish that goal of his, that objective of his, he employs multiple methods of doing so as he pursues his deception, as he repeatedly brings upon unsuspecting souls the dangers that will lead them from one error into another until they are completely overwhelmed by darkness and false doctrine and false teaching, and they are led astray into the bondage of soul and the darkness of soul that will eventually lead to everlasting ruin in the blackness of darkness forever. That danger is very prevalent and very, very popular in our day and in our times. And so Paul warns them clearly about the danger in which they are being, into which they are being led by the false teachers who are attacking the Galatian churches. But as well as giving warning, we find here that Paul also sets before these Galatians the way of freedom that they had already embraced, that they already had professed to be the gospel that they believed, and that he sets before them once again in order to guide them away from that danger to which they were subject. You see, spiritual freedom is one of the central truths of the gospel. And that is the message that is presented from verse 4 through to verse 7 of this passage. Spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom is the gospel's answer to every kind of spiritual bondage that false religion engenders and promotes and into which it seeks to bring people and lead people until it destroys them. It has many forms. It has many approaches. It has many ways of deceiving and therefore ruining souls. I don't know exactly what it might be that you believe or what you think about spiritual matters or what your uh, beliefs are concerning your soul, death, and eternity, where you're going, where you'll end up, where you will be one day when you leave this world. But every unconverted sinner is under some deception. It may be simply this. Someone says, I don't have any religion. I don't see the need for the gospel. I have no interest in the things of God. I do not embrace any form of belief. You might say that and think that that makes you neutral. But it doesn't. Because in your heart of hearts, you believe something you think some way and you hold on to some idea, you hold on to some notion that is not of God, that's not according to the book, that is a deception from the devil. 
and it leads you more and more down the road of bondage, of darkness, of danger, and it brings you closer and closer day by day to everlasting ruin. And what you need is for Christ to set you free. And that's what these verses, 4 through to 7, are all about. They're about the subject of spiritual freedom. I want to address you on that theme this evening. I want to look at it in three different ways as we come to consider these verses. And it is my prayer as I stand in this pulpit that those in this gathering who are in spiritual bondage or those online who are watching in and are in the very same position will have their hearts set free and be delivered from whatever deception, whatever it may be that is leading you along the wrong, the wrong road in life and closer and closer, day by day, moment by moment even, to everlasting ruin, that God will deliver you from that. And spiritual freedom will become your portion and your experience even this very Sunday evening. Let's look here at three points about this subject of spiritual freedom. Number one, the purchase of it. That's what's seen in verses 4 and 5. Wonderful verses. They read this way, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now there you have the purchase of spiritual freedom. The reference is specifically to this particular truth of spiritual freedom because it's underlined by those words, to redeem them that were under the law. In view in that little part of that verse, there is both spiritual bondage and freedom from that bondage. It talks here about being under the law. This is God's law. This is the moral law. And to be under the law is to be captive to the strict and indeed the impossible requirement that that law places on you of giving to it perfect obedience. You cannot do it, my friend. You cannot work up merit with God. You cannot obey the law to the degree where you give a perfect obedience to it and thereby you secure the well-being of your soul. You just cannot do it. And that means, therefore, that these words also include the idea of bondage to guilt and fear that come as a result of being unable to keep the law of God and meet all its demands. And so this verse is speaking of that bondage, that serfdom, that captivity in which men and women are found and young people. And my friend, that's your case. You might not think it, you might not feel it, you might not even understand it at this moment. But you are in a form of bondage. The law requires you to give it perfect obedience. I mean God's law, but you cannot do it. But the same words you see also refer to freedom, spiritual freedom, indicated by the word redeem, to redeem them that were under the law. And therefore, we're looking here at the purchase of spiritual freedom because it is Christ is the, who is the one who's in view in this verse, verse number 4, verse number 5, and the great purpose of the Lord being born is to redeem people. 
purchase for sinners spiritual freedom, freedom from a law that condemns, freedom from the bondage that it engenders, freedom from the impossibility of fulfilling all its demands. The Lord died on the cross. He came into the world and He died on the cross to deliver you and give you this spiritual freedom. You have here His intervention. It says in verse 4, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. There's the first action of Jesus Christ in His purpose of saving sinners from spiritual bondage. He intervened in the history of the world and in the affairs of fallen humanity. And since Christ was the Savior appointed to redeem men, He had to enter into the world of humanity. He had to come in order to uh, fulfill this promised redemption, and He did intervene, and that's signified by those words, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. That's the Lord's birth. That's the incarnation. We'll see more about that in a moment or two, but this is what has been said here. Jesus Christ intervened. It says here, speaks here of the fullness of time. The word fullness signifies end or completion. The thought there is, and the word time refers to the closing of an era or a period of time. And, and what's in view here, therefore, is a certain age. And at the completion of that age, God sent Jesus Christ. The age in view is the Old Testament age, running for thousands of years from the time of creation and especially the time of the fall right on down until that moment in Bethlehem when the Son of God came forth from the womb of the Virgin and this marvelous statement was fulfilled when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth His Son. We're looking here at a specific moment in the history of this world. We're looking here at a fact that is an historic fact that is a, a confirmed fact. Let me say to you tonight, only does the Bible tell you that Jesus Christ was born, so does secular history. That is one thing that men will never make known as they oppose the gospel, as they ridicule the gospel. The very secular historians of the first century wrote voluminously about the birth of Jesus Christ about Jesus of Nazareth, about all of the genealogy that uh, was part of the whole story. And therefore, they wrote about a moment in history when Christ intervened in the history of humanity. What a wonder that is. When the time was right, when the appointed moment arrived, God sent His Son an act of grace, an act of mercy on the part of Almighty God. Instead of passing by the whole human race, instead of leaving all men to the consequences of their rebellion and their fallen state and their disobedience to God, He sent His blessed Son. And that means that this matter of spiritual freedom that sinners are given through the grace of God is not based on a theory. 
but is based on this matter of the historic fact of divine intervention in the plight of man. Ah, my friend, the human race has always been in a serious and a sad plight from that day when Adam disobeyed the God who made him. And it's in a plight tonight. And let me tell you, if you are without Jesus Christ, your soul is in the greatest danger. Your soul is in the greatest plight imaginable. You are a lost soul. You're on the wrong road in life. And it may well be that there are matters that you know well and you've been taught from earliest days, but you've turned your back on them and you've gone your own way and therefore your soul is in the danger of everlasting ruin. And yet into this world, Jesus Christ was sent. His intervention. There's also His incarnation here as we build up this picture of spiritual freedom been purchased by Christ, He had to intervene. He had to become man. He had to step into history. And how did it happen? Look at the next words. Made of a woman, or made of the woman, as it reads in the original language. And what we've been shown is that Jesus Christ could only purchase our deliverance and our redemption from sin's bondage by becoming incarnate, the Word being made flesh, the eternal Son of God taking the very nature of those He came to save, taking a human nature. How we think about the birth of the Lord, we, we, we hear in many, many instances, an awful load of rubbish about that great event of the birth of our Savior. What we've got to understand is this. This is the matter of God becoming man and yet not ceasing to be God. Someone said to me the other day that you are the first preacher I've ever heard who used the phrase, the God-man. I don't know why that could be, because there's nothing original about that with me. The God-man, it's a lovely term. It's a theological term. It's a biblical term. It's a term that opens up a whole realm of, of truth and hope and deliverance for men and women. Uh, oh, the, the, the marvel of it, the wonder of it, that Christ actually assumed our humanity. There He is, the eternal Son with the everlasting Father and the blessed Spirit from all eternity dwelling in that fellowship unbroken and marvelous. And one of those three persons stepped into time, as you've seen, intervened in history, and was made flesh, became man. Why did He do that? Why did He humble Himself to become a man? Why did He take that step? For it was a step of humiliation, a step of condescension. He lowered Himself. He became a little lower than the angels even. He who made the angels. He didn't take angelic nature. He took human nature. Why? Because He came to save sinners. Human beings 
He came to set them free. He came to purchase for them their spiritual freedom. And therefore, the point that Paul makes here in those words, made of a woman, the incarnation, the birth of the Lord, taking our humanity, is that here is a miracle that guaranteed the presence of the supernatural in our entire redemption. I want you to catch that. Jesus Christ was man, but He did not cease to be God, as I have said, and therefore the whole issue of our salvation, the whole matter of our redemption and being set free is bathed in the atmosphere of the supernatural. Let me tell you, friend, there is no spiritual freedom as a consequence of some natural transaction that a mere man performs or men as a group might endeavor to bring about or whatever you care to mention. There is no deliverance there because there's no supernatural there. We need the supernatural. We need the supernatural to overcome what sin has done. We need the supernatural to reverse the effects of the fall. We need the supernatural to change people's lives and make them new creatures and take them off the broad road that's leading to eternal hell and put them on that narrow way that leads to everlasting glory. We need the supernatural for all that. And Jesus Christ, is that blessed person in whom we find God and man, the two natures brought together and remaining distinct in that one person all the while, and yet brought together so that the supernatural begins to operate and the work is done and freedom from sin is, is achieved and accomplished. And there is this blessed person who gives himself who, who dies for sinners and who redeems them by the shedding of His own precious blood and makes a sacrifice that has an infinite value to it because of the supernatural. So here, concerning the purchase of spiritual freedom, there's intervention. There's incarnation. But then there's also identification. We go a little closer to man now. It says here in the next words, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Again, we come, to, to back, uh, we come back to this, just to think about it a little more. To redeem them that were under the law. The Lord was made under the law to redeem those, that's us, who are under that law. And he did so by undertaking to give that full obedience that I mentioned earlier on behalf of sinful men who themselves are helplessly under this law. The Ten Commandments that you have broken time without number. God's holy law that demands your perfect obedience. But because of what sin has done in your heart and done in your life, you are in of giving up the obedience that it requires. In fact, you have a nature that rebels against giving that obedience. You want your own way, you want your own will, 
You want to do what pleases you, pleases your fleshly nature. You want to do that which you believe will make you happy in this world and will bring you satisfaction and give you contentment. And you think that that's the way to live. And all the while you are under the law's wrath and condemnation and the threat of eternal ruin. Now, my friend, what's to be done for you? Well, here's a Savior who was made under that law in order to redeem you from the threat and the power and the penalty and the condemnation of that law. He submitted to it. It says he was made under the law. This is one of the most marvelous facts that we could think about. Here is the one who is the judge of all men. He's coming one day, you know, to judge the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, I mean. He will appear in His glory. He will come on the clouds of heaven. That day is hastening on. Our world is a mess. Our world is in turmoil. Our world is under judgment already. Pestilence after pestilence. Wars and rumors of wars and unrest and all the rest of it. The world is headed fast for judgment, to be judged by the law of God. On that last great day, the law that man has broken, but here is our Savior in His identification with us in all our need, and He submitted to His own law, Christ is the giver of the law. He's the one who appeared at Mount Sinai in the midst of flaming fire with the thunder and the lightning and the mount quaking. He's the one who appeared there and with his finger he wrote the Ten Commandments on the two tables of stone. It was his voice that was heard the voice of Christ at Sinai. And yet He came into the world, as we've seen, He intervened, He became incarnate, He identifies with men by actually submitting to this law to give to it the obedience that it requires in order to provide for the likes of us a perfect righteousness. And my friend, this is marvelous grace that the Son of God, imagine it, the judge of all the earth, would actually submit to His own law and give obedience to it because He loves the likes of you. Because He has come, as we've seen in the fullness of time, to rescue the likes of you. But He said, go a little farther. It says to redeem them that were under the law. And you take the word redeem and you are therefore immediately at, at the cross. You're at Calvary. You're at the place where the Savior shed His blood, where the Lord Jesus suffered under the penalty of that law. Yes, in His life He gave full obedience every jot and every tittle, but He wasn't finished. 
because the law has a penalty, and that must be fulfilled. And he goes to the cross, see him as he leaves the city of Jerusalem, bearing his own cross, weighed down beneath the load of it, and the sins of men on him. Where is he going? What is he doing? He's going to Calvary. He's going to be nailed to the cross he carries. He's going to hang, suspended between heaven and earth, and down over his soul as well as his body, there will descend the wrath of a holy God, and the blessed Son of God will accomplish what these words set before us to redeem those under the law by enduring the curse of that law. That's identification. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Christ hath redeemed us, this same book says, from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. And you see, in all that identification with us who are under the law, all of, man, all of mankind, every human being under the law, condemned and lost and guilty, Jesus Christ identified with us, submitting to the law, suffering under the law. But listen, what we don't get here, it has not been said as it should be said, satisfying that law. Under the law. To satisfy that law. Does God's law hold any threat anymore toward ungodly men and women? Yes, against the impenitent. Those who reject the Savior are under the curse of the law. But for the one who comes to Christ and rests in Christ as Savior and Redeemer, there is no more curse. The law's curse has been exhausted. It has been fully met in all its demands. And therefore, we have the purchase of spiritual freedom. Through Christ and Christ alone, let me tell you, sinner, you need Christ even more than you are aware because it's Christ who has redeemed sinners from the curse of the law. There's also here, quickly, the privilege of spiritual freedom. It's signified in verse 5 that we might receive the adoption of sons. That is lovely language. It is language that rings with grace, with mercy, with a glad note, indeed, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And in that you have the privilege of spiritual freedom. Those for whom the Lord has procured this spiritual freedom are, the, are given this 
certain privilege, uh, the privilege of being adopted into the family of God. Notice the word that's used there, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The word adoption, may I say, is a word used in the Old Testament only by the Apostle Paul. But there's a special reason for that. And that reason is that this man, Paul, is the great theologian given by God the Holy Spirit to the church of Christ. He's the man who laid out and on uh, very clear terms, no uncertain terms, the whole scheme of redemption, including this matter of the adoption that sinners experience when they come to Him. The word adoption, that means to place in the family or to be placed as a son. It signifies the privilege, therefore, of sonship being given to those to whom it does not naturally belong. Do you or I deserve to be the sons of God, the children of God? Do we deserve that privilege? Should we be given that standing? No, my friend. The answer is a thousand no's. We deserve the very opposite of this. We deserve that which is our true deserts, namely the wrath of God, cast away forever, banished to the lowest hell, and yet the privilege of spiritual freedom is for a sinner, vile and guilty and undeserving, being brought into the family of God, into this position of being one of the sons of God, placed in that great company of the Lord's redeemed people by grace alone. And therefore, we're looking at a term here that is wonderful in its meaning and expansive in its meaning. Paul is teaching here this great fact that when we are brought to Christ, if you come to Christ tonight, then immediately you are given this position of sonship in the family of God and you become an heir of God and you become an inheritor of all of the privileges and the blessings that belong to all those who are in view in these terms that we might receive the adoption of sons. And of course, this is language that overthrows the whole teaching of liberal theology of that lie, that deceit, that all people are the children of God, that there's no exception to that, and it could not be farther from the truth. Because if these words mean anything, they mean that those who have not been redeemed or those who do not come to Jesus Christ are not the sons of God, do not have this privilege, this privileged standing and position that belongs alone to those who do come to Jesus Christ. And they remain slaves. They remain outside the family of God. They remain lost. They remain on the wrong road. They remain the children of the devil. They remain those who are under condemnation. They are not heirs of God or joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's why we had our reading in Romans 8 at the start of the service. That wonderful passage there in Romans 8, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received 
and as God's people, the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Same language as here. What's in view here? This, my dear friend, when we are brought to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son, we become joint heirs with Him. We're lifted out of our former bondage. We receive a new legal standing in Christ. We become a son of God, an heir of God, as it says here in these verses in Galatians chapter 4. And this truth, therefore, of spiritual freedom assures the sinner that when Christ is trusted, then a whole new standing is given, the privilege of a new standing, one of liberty, one of freedom from bondage, from the world, from the devil, from sin. That's given to that person. That's the privilege of spiritual freedom. Set free. Now, translated into the kingdom and family of God and Christ, and delivered from all the condemnation that sin deserves. There is, therefore, not only the purchase of spiritual freedom, but there is the privilege of it in the family of God. Let me say to you tonight, if you have never come to Christ, if you never trusted Him, then you still belong to that portion of humanity which is described in the Scripture as being children of wrath, deserving of hell. That's where you are. That's your position tonight. You know nothing of being accepted in Christ, a joint heir with Christ, one to whom heaven is promised and heaven will one day be given. But you'll remain a child of hell and you will perish forever. As I come to a close tonight, let me just show you the pattern of spiritual freedom. Verse number 6, it says, Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in the hearts of all those who do become the sons of God. But in being sent into their hearts, He produces a pattern of life that is significant of spiritual freedom. To know that by that expression there, the Spirit of His Son sent into our hearts And the cry emerges from the heart of the child of God, Abba, Father. That word Abba is what you call an Aramaic word, taking language. It's a word that signifies a term of endearment where the true believer, the true child of God now sees God the Father as someone who is a loving, tender, heavenly Father and becomes the subject of of love and, and devotion and desire in that person's life. 
I wonder, is that true? Because that's what I mean by the pattern of spiritual freedom. I wonder if that is true for you. Is God the Father and His will and all that He is to those who know Him, is that your experience? Do you know Him and are you resting in Him? And do you love Him? And do you desire to do His will? Does your cry go up, not my will, but thine be done? And my friend, that's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Even Him who was in the garden, as He was on the ground and before the Father, and His great cry went up, Not my will, but thine be done. I tell you tonight, if that pattern of spiritual freedom is not found in your heart, you have no love for God, no desire for Him as your Father, no Longing to please Him, do His will, walk with Him, speak with Him, serve Him, then spiritual freedom is not your portion. You are yet in your sin. You are yet lost and guilty. My dear friend, you remain in the bondage and under the power of sin. And the only way for that to be removed is for you to flee to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, and flee to Him even this very moment. He calls you to come. You've heard us call many a time before, perhaps. You've rejected it. You've turned away. You've gone the wrong road in life. Or perhaps that's where you are heading. And already you're taking the first steps, young man, young woman, down the wrong road in life. And you tell yourself that you can be free another way. What you really want is freedom to sin. Freedom to please the flesh. Freedom to indulge its evil desires and fulfill your own corrupt longings. And that's a freedom that will destroy you. That's not this spiritual freedom purchased by Christ that brings you into this privilege of being one of the sons of God and an heir with Christ of glory in heaven. Therefore, all in your life is wrong. And it will remain wrong until you repent. Repent of your rebellion and your stubbornness and your willfulness and your love of the world. And you flee to the blessed man of Calvary. Let us bow together as we come to a close, may the Lord take His Word and use it for His glory in your heart. If there is anyone here this evening who is troubled and concerned and God has spoken to you and you long to know what it is to be free from sin, its guilt, its corruption, the eternal ruin that it brings, and enter into the freedom that there is in Christ. 
Then have a word with us when the meeting is over. Come to the Savior. Come and trust Him for this spiritual freedom that we've considered tonight. I'll be glad to help you, glad to speak with you. Mr. Stewart is here also. Seek out help tonight. And may God, by His Spirit, write His Word on every heart. And Lord, we leave the outcome of the meeting with Thee, Thou dost know the hearts of all men and women, young people. Deal with them, we pray, those who know not God. Bring them to the Savior. Deliver them by Thy grace. O Lord, this very night reach down and pluck them as brands from the burning. Hear prayer for Christ's sake and for your own everlasting praise and glory. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all those who know and love Thee. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen.